0: Passages before we get to Acts 21, and um, just a few things to talk about, just talking about the book of Acts in general. Um, you know, one of them is, uh, a lot of times we call it the Acts of the Apostles, and um, rightfully so, because a lot of the apostles are in here, and then also Paul, who is the apostle to, apostle to the Gentiles, but it could equally be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, you know, and so uh, just as well as we see throughout this whole book, the common theme is is that the Holy Spirit is working in ways to accomplish one will. What is that will? God's will. And so it's interesting to know that God is, God's will is going to be accomplished. And he uses people, he uses things, he uses events, he uses wicked kings, he uses you know, wicked rulers, he uses saved people, he uses lost people, he uses all sorts of kinds of people to accomplish his will. And, uh, you know, we see that over and over and over again, and, uh, you know, and it's just really neat to see that happen, and uh, in our life, you know, as we see in our country, in our world, and we think sometimes, is God really in control, because what we see sometimes does not really look like God is in control, but I can promise you, one thing's for sure, God is in control, all right? He is in control, and He, is, he has a plan, and through that plan and through that will, uh, many times we see that happen, and we can see... Paul accomplishing his will, but also God accomplishing his will at the same time. One of the other very interesting things that happened in the book of uh, Acts, um, Luke, when he ends the gospel of Luke, is in Jerusalem. uh, And then also when Acts opens up, it's in Jerusalem. And so that's kind of the hub of all the belief system of the world. Anybody that believes in God, it's in Jerusalem. And so by the end of the book of Acts, though, where does it end? It ends in Rome. It's not in Jerusalem, it ends in Rome. So, as, as just a picture to show that the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way that they're talking about, has moved from Jerusalem to where? To the ends of the earth, right? That's where it's supposed to go. And for us as Christians, I think that's a great sign for us to be challenged by these, uh, you know, these believers and Paul's missionary journeys. Paul had three voluntary missionary journeys and he had one that was his prison prison tour right that he had to go through under house arrest or under arrest but he had three uh, missionary journeys first one he went second one he expanded a little bit the third one he expanded even more here we have been studying the last one we've been going through his last uh, missionary journey but his purpose was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth And that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the challenge he has left us. And that's the challenge we must see, Pat, that we must see in our lives, that where do we fit in God's story is that we are to take the gospel as far as we can. And wherever that influence that you have or wherever God calls you to go, that's where to do that. And, uh, you know, one of the things you see in Paul's life is that he was 100% sold out for Jesus Christ, right? I mean... There is no doubt that Paul uh, was uh, one of those, uh, you know, <laughs> they call them one-percenters in the biker world, I guess, but Paul was literally one, a one-percenter in the Christian world, right? And so he was uh, one that didn't bend, bow, or break to anyone's pressure or anyone's, uh, you know, uh, any, any type of persecution or trials, and how did he get to that point? I, I think it's because of one word, surrender. I mean, Paul, on the road to Damascus, he was broken so hard by God that there was only one thing, one choice he had. You remember the choice, right? It's either surrender or you're going to die, you know. And so God said, you know, as, as Paul surrendered everything he had to God, and he lived that out every day of his life, like you never see this wavering in Paul's life. And through his mission, you see that over and over and over again. And uh, I must admit, when I talked about this on Sunday to the, to the uh, graduates, <clears throat> you know, starting out at 18 and living for the Lord is one thing, but continuing that to the last day you live is a whole nother thing, right? I mean, we, we must want to run our race, but run it with endurance. Run it with uh, confidence to know that we're going to finish our race. And Paul is a great example of that. And, um, you know, I think he got that, uh, as we're going to see through this story right here. And uh, I think part of it is Paul's desire. And I think part of it is, uh, but most of it, I think, is God's desire and God's will uh, for Paul. And so um, I wanted you to look at Acts chapter 19, verse 21, because this is where the beginning of this uh, understanding of why Paul was going to go to Jerusalem begins. Uh, It says in Acts 19, verse 21, When these things were accomplished... Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia Achaia, to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. That was the plan. Paul knew by the time the end of his life was going to come to the end, he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to end up in Rome. That was his plan. And so uh, he knew that was going to happen. And how did he know that was going to happen? Because of Paul's plan or because of why did he purpose that in his heart? Because of the Spirit. In your Bible, in my Bible, Spirit is capitalized. Is Spirit capitalized in your Bible? No? Not capitalizing your Bible? What translation do you have? King James. King James Version? All right. So he has he has lowercase s in his. In mine, it's is capitalized s as, S as because the, the translators determined that they determined this to be the Holy Spirit. So, Paul purposed, and probably because of the possession of the, of the word in the Greek, um, because Paul purposed in the Spirit, not in his Spirit, but in the Spirit, so they capitalize it, um, signifying of, of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. And So, Paul here purposed in the Spirit, or in the Holy Spirit, that after he was going to do that, he was going to go to Jerusalem. Now, look at Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. We see the second time this comes around says, and see, uh, in verse 22, it says, and see, now I, bound, I, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. Now, in my Bible, it's lowercase s there. So I think you have a combination of both. I think you have the combination of Paul's Spirit, and I think you have the combination of the Holy Spirit. So Paul, at some point, was determined because of what he heard or what he got from the Holy Spirit. And, and so because of what the Holy Spirit had, uh, had, had revealed to him of him going to Jerusalem and Rome, then Paul purposed in his heart that that was going to happen. Because like I said, Paul was an all-or-nothing kind of guy. And so Paul was on this journey. And, and maybe Paul got to a point in his heart and his life where he knew, uh, you know, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of writers say that Paul had health concerns and he had a lot of health conditions. Maybe Paul felt like he didn't have a lot of days left. And he thought, you know, maybe this is coming to my time of the end of my life. And I know I need to get to Jerusalem. I'm going to get to Rome. And I'm going to make that happen, right? <laughs> and maybe, maybe through his own personal understanding of that as well. So somehow, some way in his heart, he determined he was going to get to Jerusalem. And so we have one that we had rendered capital S. Now we have one in lowercase s, which would have been just in Paul's spirit and Paul's heart. And then it says, not knowing the things that will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that the chains and the tribulations await me. So Paul's saying the Holy Spirit did testify him to not to go, but he said if you go, you're going to have chains, you're going to have tribulations. But he also says it doesn't matter if it's Jerusalem, if it's Troas, if it's Ephesians or Ephesus or wherever it is, what does he say? Every city. doesn't matter to me. Every city I go to, I'm surely going to be in chains and tribulations. That's what I know is going to happen to me. So through the Holy Spirit, he knows he's going to go. But through the Paul spirit, maybe he's pushing it along a little bit, right? Like I'm bound and determined to get there. And to me, I could take an easier road. But I know wherever I go, I'm going to end up in chains and, and tribulations. So let's go ahead and get this over with, right? Let's go ahead and accomplish this. Uh, let's go ahead and accomplish this thing. And then verse 24, he says, but none of these things move me. So he gives us his heart. This is his total surrender. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life so dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, wow, so we think about when God calls us to do things. I think about my life. A couple things that, you know, when God calls you to do something, you've got to count the cost, right? Immediately, you think, if I do that, that's going to cost me this, right? So Sometimes it's maybe in your job. Sometimes it's in your career. Sometimes it's in your family. Sometimes it's in, a, you know, in your neighborhood or whatever God calls you to do. You know there's a cost to following God every time. Anytime God calls you to do something, it's going to cost you something. But the perspective we ought to have is what does that cost compared to the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us? It's nothing, right? We know Paul also wrote in Romans that our sacrifice compared to the sacrifice that Jesus gave, it's reasonable service to whatever God calls you to do. It's reasonable. Why is it reasonable? Because Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price. In Hebrews, talking a little bit about chapter 12 uh, this past week, it, it talked about the suffering uh, of, of the following God and finishing your race compared to Jesus Christ's suffering. And he told them that Jesus Christ came, he suffered, he died, he's, on, he's ascended on high. And he says, now you tell me which one of you have suffered to the point of tears of blood and shed blood, bloodshed. He was, he was exhorting them. Like, none of you could say that you suffered that much. So, compared to what Jesus has done... Paul had learn, learned that lesson. And so he said, None of these things move me. I, I've had trials, I've had tribulations, I've been beat, I've been punched, I've been stoned. And you know what? None of those things will hinder me from doing God's will in my life. You know, for us, that's something for us to consider when God calls us. What is it that hinders us from get, doing God's will in our life? Is it money? Is it, is it popularity? Sometimes God calls me to do things and I'm supposed to testify or, 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 or to witness to someone and I shrink back because I actually like the people. I think, well, if I say this to them, it's going to hurt their feelings or they're going to get upset with me and maybe they might not talk to me the next time or maybe, you know, just something in your own heart, fear, anxiety, whatever it may be, but, but it's all part of counting the cost. Do I, want to, do I value a friendship more than I value sharing the gospel with that person? You know, and when you count the cost, Paul's already said, I don't care if it's tribulation, change, trials, whatever it may be. Nothing is going to change this, uh, this purpose and this, this uh, purpose that I have in my heart to do God's will. And then he says, nor do I even count my life dear to myself. He's saying, even if I die. Matter of fact, Paul comes and he tells us, you know, even through the whole summary of his life, he says, until you're ready to die for Jesus, you're not ready to live for Jesus. So for me to live, I mean, for me to die, I mean, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what he came to the conclusion of. But he said, either way for me, it doesn't matter that I don't even count my life so dear to myself because I've already seen the finish line. I've already completely surrendered to God. And Paul had so much faith in God's plan and purpose for his life that he says, even my own life that I have now, my very own breath, soul, and days that I have left on this earth, it's not even dear to myself. I, I give it all up so that what? I may finish my race with joy. That's how committed he was to God's call in his life. And I pray that my kids see that kind of dedication in my life, that I am willing to put everything I have on the line, whatever it may be, that I, they see me committed to God like that. I mean, what a, what a testimony. And for Paul to say that, you know, I think about some of the things I've complained about over the years and some of the things that's made me shrink back from the calling in my life, and it's, it's, it's kind of shameful, right? I mean, you kind of look at that, and you're like, wow, you know, it kind of puts things in perspective. So you had to move. So you had to go, you know, to another town, so you had to give up something, So you don't have the nicest of things, but yet you're doing what God's called you to do. You don't have any type of those things. He's saying, I've surrendered it all. None of these things matter to me because what matters most is God's call in my life. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sure that happens. And I'm going to finish my race. And I'm going to finish the ministry that I received from Jesus himself. Period. So you see two there. Paul is extremely committed to this purpose. He is headlong and headstrong into getting to Jerusalem and Rome it's going to happen one way or the other in Paul's book, right? And in his book, sooner the better, right? He is sooner the better. And so look at verse 20, look at chapter 21 now. That's where we left off is verse 1. And we're going to try to work our way through chapter 21 tonight, see if we can get to the conclusion of him, and we will get to the conclusion of him getting to Jerusalem and what happens. It says in chapter 20, And now it came to pass that when we had departed from, the, from them and set sail, Running a straight course, we came to Kos, and following uh, f- and the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara or Patera, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syri- uh, Sy- Syria, and landed in Tyre, and there the ship was uh, to unload her cargo, and finding disciples. We stayed there seven days. So seven days they stayed there. And they told Paul, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. When they had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our own way. And when they all accompanied us us with the wives and children, till we were out of the city, we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. So here they were. Paul had went, found some disciples as he normally did. The ship was unloading cargo, and they decided to go. And they uh, went to this uh, disciple's homes, and they stayed there for seven days. Seven days. Seven days Paul had to sit there and listen to these uh, people tell him, don't go to Jerusalem, Right? Pleading with him, tell him, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem for seven days. And Paul was like, "All right, bye bye. <laughs> I'm, I'm out of here. I'm." I'm he ended up leaving, but for seven days, I've heard that saying about company. Company are like fish. They're great for three days, but after three days, they stink, right? So you gotta get them out of the house, you know. But think about it. They were there for seven days, and they heard it, and Paul heard this. And so and this was not a little bit. Paul heard it, and he heard it, and he heard it, and Paul ended up leaving. And as they went, their whole family went out. I'm sure they probably thought, let's make sure they get on the ship, right? Let's make sure they, they get on the ship. And so I, I think it's a beautiful picture here. They knelt down. They prayed. And they, and they had taken their leave there. And uh, all their wives and their children and uh, pretty much like a farewell tour, we already saw others hug Paul's neck and cry because they knew that they would never see him again. And Paul said, you'll probably never see my face again because I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And after Jerusalem, I'm going to Rome. He had already given them the plan, uh, but they knew they, he would never come back that way again. And so it's such a beautiful picture of them loving Paul, the apostle, and just uh, you know, loving him as, a, as one who was a, a servant of the Lord. Then look at verse 7, and when they had finished our, and we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to uh, Tamalus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day, all right? So he had seven days to one day. And on the next day, we who were of Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, entered the house of the Philip the Evangelist. You remember Philip the Evangelist? There he is. He's back to the same, same, same Philip, same Evangelist uh, that went and, uh, with the Ethiopian eunuch. And now he was there again. He was still serving the Lord. They went back, and he was one of the seven that stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Uh, that was something in the Old Testament, part of something of the Jewish tradition of these daughters who were unmarried, that they were able to have dreams and able to prophesy. Verse 10, as we stayed for many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, Bound it around his hands and feet, and said, "Thus says the Holy Spirit: So shall the Jews, uh, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." So uh, apparently, Abigus was a pretty theatrical guy, right? So he asked for Paul's belt, and then he says, "The man who possesses this belt." Everybody knew whose belt that was already, right? But apparently through their process of, of this, uh, this, uh, this, this, uh, this prophecy, um, he had taken an act of this out and uh, he had bound himself and bound his hands and bound his feet. And he's like, this is, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt and he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be bound through chains. Well, verse 12, now when they heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So at this point, is there anybody pleading with Paul to go to Jerusalem, right? <laughs> I mean, everybody's pleading with him not to go. Abigas And uh, now, now the, the daughters who prophesied, the, the ones who were pleading with him before, and the ones who he had left in, back in Ephesus, all these ones are pleading with him saying, here, don't go, don't leave, make sure you don't go to that. Paul Paul uh, is going to answer him. Paul in verse 13 answers him. And look what he says in verse 13. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping? And breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying, the will of the Lord be, to be done. That's interesting, isn't it? So now Paul comes and he says, listen, I know uh, you all think this and you all want this, and you say for me not to go to Jerusalem because I will be bound. But Paul says, it means nothing to me. Like, I, like you're pleading with me and it's breaking my heart. And you're making me feel bad. But because I don't feel like, feel good or because you're trying to make me feel bad, doesn't negate what he thought or what he believed was God's call on his life. And he's like, what you, what you, the reason you are using for me to, go to not to go to Jerusalem, it, that has no value to me at all, because I'm not only ready to be bound, I'm willing to die. And if it takes dying to go to Jerusalem, that's what I'm going to do. So I think that comes from a couple things. One is because, like I said, Paul was persuaded that the Holy Spirit had called him to go to Jerusalem. And Paul was also persuaded it it was time for him, this was the time for him to go. Now, I think there's spirited debate. You could read several commentaries about this there are some bible scholars there are some theologians that believe that paul was making a tragic mistake that paul had forced this hand of god this was not the will of god and that paul was going to enter in jerusalem and paul was going to not finish his uh not finish his ministry well but i don't think scriptures will back that up if you if you listen to the testimony about paul you listen to what he says about him that we know that Paul did go to Jerusalem and Paul did end up going to Rome. Like I said, God's will was still done. Now, would it have been done a different way? Maybe, right? But we still know what came out of this process right here. What came out of this process right here was when Paul went into Jerusalem and he was bound and he was put into prisons, there was a, the prison epistles was written during that time. And we have letters of Philippians, and we have the prison epistles that we can go to and look to, and Paul says, I'm bound in chains, and he, he's writing these letters that God has used to encourage you and encourage me. And so regardless of what we believe, if it was the right move or if it was the wrong move, God most certainly used it. And that's the good news about God's will in our life, right? And That's the good news about the purpose and will of God in our life, and that's where we can trust in God's plan and purpose for our life, even when we can't draw a straight line of it happening in our life sometimes, right? Romans 8.28. You guys know that's one of my favorite verses. I have an alarm on my phone that goes off at 8.28, a reminder, every morning and every night. It says that, For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And I quote that self to myself, every time. I quote it to my children. I quote it to Tanner. I quote it to Tucker. Whoever's with me, when 828 happens, I quote that scripture to them. And I love what that means. It doesn't say, for all things are good. How many of you in your life, everything that's happened to you has been good? You know, I think many times for us as Christians, you know, we, especially pastors and other leaders, I've heard people tell us, and someone will tell something about a tragedy that happened in their life, and say, that's good. Like, that's not good. They got hit by a car. You know what I mean? Like, that's not good. You know, that, that their house burned down. That's not good, right? They lost their job. That's not good. The promise of serving God is not that all things are good. What, what is the promise? The promise is that God will work all things for good. So I, I think in this principle is so true right here in Paul's own life. Whether you believe he was the right path and you believe that Paul had listened to the Holy Spirit and this was exactly what Paul was supposed to do that that he went that way and this is exactly what God's plan was for him or if you believe Paul was pushing his own self and he had a personal agenda because he was a Jew because he loved the Jerusalem people he loved the Pharisees he was one of them he grew up there and Paul had a personal agenda. To want to get to those people, to be able to tell them, to witness to them, to be able to get back to where it all started from. And maybe he had something in his heart that that, that we we see here that he was pushing a a part of God's will or pushing the, the agenda of that. But you can't argue with the result. Either way, God worked it together for good, right? And you could see that happen. And you know what? That's such a great promise for us in our life, is it not? And we have the promise of God's will in our life that wherever the road takes us, that God can work it for good. God can work it for good, and we make good decisions. We make bad decisions. Paul, this very well could have been a good decision, and you can very well argue and say this was a bad decision. But one thing you can't argue is that God took it and used it for good, because He did. He used it in Paul's life, he's using it in our life, and he's still using it even throughout the Word of God that we have that Paul had written through that times of the the apostles and through the epistles. And so for me, I'm not going to argue with it one way or the other. If you think Paul was a personal agenda that he pushed, or if you think that Paul was right on track, I think there's a case for both of them. But I think we both can agree, or both sides can agree, That however this shakes out, we know for sure that God used it for good, and he most certainly did. And you know, the promise that we have, not only through this, especially if we believe Paul was on the wrong track, because we do some dumb things sometimes, right? I love that sign that says, you know, sometimes things happen to you because you do some dumb things, right? (laughs) Sometimes, Sometimes we do dumb things. Sometimes we... I I did this when I was a kid. I'll never forget it. I was just telling my boys this the other day. I was looking at him. I said, you know what? I said, you guys are young. I Tucker, you're working. You don't have a wife. You don't have kids. Go get you a new truck. That's what you need to do. (laughs) About an hour later, I said, what in the world did I tell that boy to go get a new truck for? He's got a perfectly fine truck, you know? And I think about about when I was a kid, I was dying to get me, you know, a a, a four-wheel drive truck. That's what I wanted. My dad told me, he said, you don't need a four-wheel drive truck. You need a, something to get you to school and back. I was like, no, if I could get me a four-wheel drive truck, that's what I wanted. Man, I begged for a four-wheel drive truck. Sure enough, he got me a 1983 F-150 four-wheel drive truck. It had a 302 in that thing. I'll never forget it. it. had a granny gear. You guys ever been in a granny gear before, right? had a dog leg, you know, four-wheel drive, do- dog leg, granny gear, you know. I remember the first night I got it, I went over and went over by the guana over there in the preserve, right there off Neck Road. I had a good friend that lived over there. I looked out there, and I, all I could see was stumps and mud and all sorts of stuff. And he said, I bet you can't take that truck through that. And I said, it's a four-wheel drive. You better believe I can, right? First night, first night I got the truck. What do you think I did? Watch this. <laughs> what do you think I did then? Dad, I'm stuck. <laughs> can you come get me? <clears throat> he came over there after he got done chewing me out. <laughs> he helped me get out. I got it home. I had tore off the front tire rod. I had bent the, uh, I had messed up the front axle. I had, you know, ruined the hubs on it. I had to go down and buy me new Warner hubs and all this stuff like that. And uh, I realized, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have a four-wheel drive truck, right? So uh, after playing around with that thing for a while, Still didn't learn my lesson. Took it on Greenland Road. I thought, man, this guy got stuck in a Chevy truck. It was a Chevy four-wheel drive truck. I said, that old Chevy piece of junk. I said, my Ford will drive all the way around that thing, get in front of me, I'll pull you out of there. Got around the side of him, went to the side. Sure enough, I got stuck. I got stuck. I couldn't get that thing out. They brought it out everywhere. I remember calling Wayne McCrary. And his dad, his dad had a, he had a Jeep, an old Jeep that was all jacked up and everything. He brought that thing out of there. He hooked that thing up. He let that thing go and loose, man, it snapped the axle right off of that thing. Had to drive shaft. He had to put it in the back, of back, back seat of the drive shaft and drive home in the, just in the front four-wheel drive. He drove it home. I thought, well, I'll call Roger. I'll get him out here. And so Roger came out there, and he had a Dually Ford truck. I was thinking, surely a Dually can get me out, you know? I hooked that strap up, man. He took off. First time he pulled, it, didn't go nowhere. Second time he went, he goes, "Let me get a run at it." You ever heard anybody say that? Hey, this ain't even part of my sermon, by the way. Anyways, <laughs> this is all free. He said, "He said, let me get a run at it, right?" He backed up there. He took off, and he took off. Man, he hit that thing. That truck went to budge, and all of a sudden, the the, the tow strap snapped. And that toe strap snapped. It had a hook on the end of that thing, about that big, a metal hook. That, well, actually, the last part it was a chain. Actually, I had hooked the you know the strap around. It. it had a chain around. it. when that thing pulled, that chain was probably about I don't know six foot long. It hit the tailgate put a dents all the way up the tailgate, and went through the back windshield of his truck, busted out the back windshield. So he left with his windshield busted out the back windshield back. And not only did he get the back windshield, he got the front windshield, too. Got both, both of them. Yeah. Roger said, I can't help you. I got a friend of mine who's got a tow truck, though. He <laughs> said, all right. Call Harry's Towing. Anybody knows Harry's Towing? Here comes Harry. I was like, "Oh my goodness, this guy's gonna—I don't know what he's gonna." He goes, "I ain't getting my truck muddy." I was like, "Oh no." He's like, "I'm gonna come alongside you and pull you out." I was like, "All right." He pulled up on the side of me, hooked me up. Like I said, this ain't even part of my sermon, but anyways, he he hooked it up. and I was in the middle of it. He goes, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna hook up my winch. It's like a—I don't know, 150 150-ton winch or something like that." And uh, sure enough, he hit it, and all of a sudden. He, I went. It went. All the whole frame just moved. I was like, "Oh, it moved! Yes, yes, yes!" And uh, he kept pulling. The next thing I know, truck wasn't going anywhere. But the front of it literally moved about seven inches that way. <laughs> he bent the whole frame. He bent the whole frame seven inches. Come to find out, I, once I got it out, it was stuck on two stumps that had went up in between the transfer case and the and the and the, and the, and the rear end and between the and between the trans, transmission. But anyways. I, I went, when I drove it home, the whole truck was going like this all the way home. I got home, I couldn't open up the doors, I couldn't do anything. I had to get out like the Dukes of Hazzard, got out the window there. I told my dad, I says, I'm selling it and getting a two-wheel drive truck. No more four-wheel drives for me. But anyways, I say that. <laughs> I say that just to say for my kids. I say, you yeah, know, get a truck, but, but in their life, do they really need one? Amen. man, we do just some dumb decisions sometimes. Sometimes we take a job. Sometimes we make a career move. Sometimes we do something in relationship. doesn't mean it's over. Because God can even take our bad decisions and work them together for good. That's the promise we have. And that's, that's, it. that's, what I, that's for me, you're never out of the game. That's, what I'm, that's for Paul, whether you believe he was on track or whether you believe he was off track. He was never off the game and God took it and still worked it for good. So either way. When we get to discussion time, you can tell me your opinion. All right, but I, I I feel and I believe that Paul, like I said, either way, the story and the principle is this: that God took it and still used it for good. If you believe that He was doing it out of His own will or out of out of out of the will of the Lord. So, uh, let's pick up the story, um, chapter twenty-one all the way down. Paul said, "I'm persuaded." And uh, he said, this means nothing to me. I'm ready to bound. I'm ready to die. I'm going to go and the will of the Lord be done. Look at verse 15. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some, some of the disciples went to Caesarea with us, brought a certain of, uh, a certain, uh, of Cyprus, an early disciple, of whom were, uh, we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us, with James, and all the elders were present. This was James, not James and John, but James, the half-brother of Jesus. We realized that James had become the leader of the Jerusalem church. James, who wrote James in our Bible. James, who was called Camel Knees. They said he believed in prayer so much, he had calluses on his knees, he looked like a camel. Obviously, something happened in James' life. What happened in James' life? Because he wasn't a believer when Jesus was alive. He was a believer after the resurrection. If you don't believe the resurrection is real, tell me why the brother of Jesus Christ would believe that. If you think Jesus just went off and hid in a cave somewhere, I think his brother would have snuffed him out, right? His brother saw something and knew something, and he knew the resurrection was real, and it changed his life. This was James, the half-brother. We also know it wasn't the other James because in chapter 12, we already know that uh, he was beheaded, so he was already off the scene. So as you see this, you see this power of the resurrection. James is now the leader. Look at verse 19. When he had greeted them, he told in detail of all the things that God had done through the Gentiles, through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. This was Paul telling us. Then they said to him, you see, brother, how many of myriads of Jews there are who have believed in all the zealous for the law. He's saying, hey, you went and saw the Gentiles, but you see the Jews that are saved. Not only there, but here. I mean, they are, they are all saved, but they're, they're zealous for the law. They're, they're saved, but they are zealous for the law. And, and, and everyone heard, everyone's excited, and everyone's talking about the good things. And uh, and he says, but as, as you come to this point in verse 21, says, but, right? Everyone always likes to tell you the good news, but they don't want to tell you the bad news, right? So everybody's got to be a critic, right? He says, but they have informed uh, they would have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles for, 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 for sake Moses. Saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor walk to according to the customs. By the way, that wasn't what Paul was teaching. But that's what they said they were teaching. Then look at verse 22. What then? The assembly must certainly meet. For, their, for they will hear <coughs> that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow, take them, be purified with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and that you may know that all that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So what are they telling Paul? You don't fit in because you're not keeping the law. What we want you to do is just fit in, act like you keep the law. That's what they're telling him. Take these four guys with you <coughs> when you go to the temple, <coughs> and then maybe they won't uh, see that you don't keep the law. And you say, well, what would Paul do? But look at verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided they should observe no such thing, except they should have keep themselves from the things of idols, from the blood of things strangled, and from sexual immorality. That was already determined, remember, at the Council of Nicaea, right? So that was, I mean, at the council that we already talked about, Council of Jerusalem before, that was already decided. So, when, he, when they went through the Cornelius deal. So, the question is what do we do when we disagree with other brothers in Christ? What do we do when we go amongst lost people and they have customs that are different than ours? I think Paul answers that right. He answers that in Corinthians. He goes the second mile. You know why he goes the second mile? He goes the second mile not to argue with James and not to argue with the leaders, but he goes the second mile that he might win some people to Christ. Look at First Corinthians, you'll have to look at I'll read it to you. First Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Did Paul sacrifice his, his belief in Jesus Christ? No, he did not. Did Paul sacrifice his preferences? Yes, he most certainly did. He sacrificed his preferences, he sacrificed his custom, and he, and he looked to it and he says, I'm going to go the extra mile that I might win some. And he, and he tried it, he did what they said, he went to the temple and hoped that he could get there to share and to talk about the truth with them. He didn't want to hinder them from coming to know the gospel, or to know the gospel in such a way, and so he wasn't going to argue with them, he says, I'm not going to disagree with you, I'm going to go the second mile, and so what did he do? He went there the next day with the men, purified them, entered the temple, And the expiration of the day of purification at the time of the offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. It didn't work, right? Paul stuck out like a sore thumb. They knew he was faking it. Or that they knew his story didn't line up what he was teaching or what they knew he was teaching. And by the way, these Jews from Asia, these are the ones from Ephesus. Remember, they had been chasing him around already wherever he was going. So they found him again, and they, they laid hands on him. They stirred up the crowd against him. They wanted to, to kill him. In verse, verse 28, it says, men of Israel, help. This is the man, this is him, who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and Ephesians with him, Ephesus, and him with the city, "...whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together. And what did they do? Seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as all were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took the soldiers and centurions and ran down toward them. And when they saw the commander, the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul." And then the commander came near and looked at him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and ask him who he was and what he had done. And some of them among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob for the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. We'll finish up this story at the end of uh, next week. But uh, what happened to Paul when he went to Jerusalem? It's put into chains, right? <laughs> Prophecies were true, right? He immediately got there. He's persecuted. He was tried. He was beaten. He was violently beaten by this mob. They put him in chains. And now he's under arrest for the rest of Paul's life from this point forward, probably another four years or so. Uh, maybe even a little bit longer he's going to be in chains the rest of his time he's never going to come out of custody again he's going to go from Jerusalem we are talk about a little bit of this too uh, and go into Rome obviously under arrest as well but of course as we see this coming to the close of his last voluntary missionary journey and as well he gets to go on his parts of his uh, you know after he is uh, as well uh, cuffed so let me pray and then we'll uh, talk about this chapter, talk about some things that I might have missed, and then uh, we'll, we'll get back to uh, pray, praying. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all the things you've done in our hearts and lives. I pray, God, as we come tonight to, to look to these truths, God, I pray. Lord, just guide our hearts and our minds, Lord, and God, I just thank you for Paul. I thank you for the testimony that he is, Lord, and I just pray uh, that we look to our own calling in our life as we look to uh, just to be committed to it, to be purposed in our hearts for it, Lord. But also, God, to be uh, keen to your spirit, God, that wherever you lead us, Lord, we want to go. And that no matter what happens, we will be 100% surrendered to you, Lord, in our hearts and our minds, that we might fulfill your calling and your will for our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. comment.